Thanks for joining us on the HFS Podcast as a Service. I'm Mark Reed Edwards. In this edition, we go live to the Ritz-Carlton in White Plains, New York, where HFS held Cognition from September 14th to the 16th. The event featured a broad discussion of the future of services, including intelligent automation, digital trust, the as-a-service economy, design thinking, and digital. An enviable roster of thought leaders filled the room, eager to dig into the major issues facing the industry. A highlight of the event was Gerd Leonhard, renowned futurist, author, and humanist, who led off the general session on day two with a riveting keynote entitled Human Ethics as an Evolutionary Compass. To follow along, you can download the slides Gerd used for his talk at futuristgerd.com. Leonhard, author of Technology versus Humanity, The Coming Clash Between Man and Machine, led off his session by talking about that book. So let's join Gerd. Recorded live at Cognition. All right, great pleasure to be here. It's uh, always a great pleasure to talk to people that have a background that's as diverse as this crowd. Um, the book's on your table. And uh, the book is a very special thing for me because the last book I did was The Future of Music, which some of you may know, uh, 12 years ago. This is my first printed book. So it's my sixth book, but the first one that's now printed. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a nice book to take on the next airplane ride and, and read and then put in the pouch you know, for, the, for the next uh, uh, passenger. But I'll be talking about this, and don't worry, uh, when I talk about ethics, I'm not talking about ephemeral kind of uh, uh, California stuff. You know, I'm talking about very practical things that will impact your career, your business, and, and our future. You know, the, the most important thing right now that's happening is that technology is becoming the most powerful driver of change in the world. And that is in many good ways, or in most good ways, but in many also more difficult ways. You know, technology now has the answer. If you, if you just ask whatever you want, whether technology can do something, the answer is usually yes. Can technology sooner or later solve cancer? The answer is 99% yes. How long they will take? Not that long compared to you know, overall history. Can technology provide clean energy? Well, the answer is definitely yes. Can it make our lives better? The answer is yes. But then technology also changes our culture, our social contract, and of course the way that we do business as a, as a consequence. I mean, if, if you just look back to the last couple of years, there's a huge amount of change that has been driven by technology. The most powerful companies are technology companies. And basically anything that used to be hardware is now software. Music, films, television, books, money, banking, health records. And that goes all the way to energy when we're ready. So I'll talk about those shifts and what they mean. Uh, we're going to publish the slides on my website. It's uh, futurewithgerd.com. The best way to remember my website is uh, uh, futurewithgerd, like gastrointestinal reflux disease, you know, G-E-R-D, same thing. Uh, I am, in fact, number two GERD on the internet after the disease, uh, so that's quite an accomplishment. I'm very happy with that. But if you go to my website, there's, uh, I have about, I don't know, I've got like 4,000 posts. You can download all my slideshows there, and I'll put this right on top of the, just look for the blog, and then you can download today's slideshow. And we're going to have an MP3 version as well. So if you want to be tortured again in the car and play it for your, for your loved ones, you, know, you, can, you can do that as well. So this is what I do. As a futurist, I don't predict, right? It's actually, some people are good at prediction, like Alvin Toffler, maybe Ray Kurzweil, you know. Um, I think it's a very, very difficult thing to do. Most of what I do is observations. 
And it's pretty much what you could be doing if you had more time to do so. Um, which leads me to the very first thing about the future. You have to spend 5% of your time at least with looking at what isn't already here, right? what might be next. That's the best way to be safe for the future. Because then you discover possibilities. And I think if you read the book, you'll agree that there's some great ideas about where this could be going. Um, I have a hashtag on Twitter. It's AskGerd. Right? You can use that. And I will try to answer your questions later or even while I'm speaking if I can get to my mobile. So first I want to say the world is better than you think. I have a lot of conversations with people, especially professionals and people in the service business, right, who are saying, well, they're really worried about automation and the loss of jobs and the decline of margins and machines taking over and all these things. Right? I'm a bit worried about that too, but in general you can say, you know, basically what's happening is that the world around us is getting increasingly better. Look at this, right? The, the amount of global life expectancy, we're going to be 100 in average. Right? The amount of uh, words that are recognized by machine learning, the, the uh, solar revolution that makes it possible to get cheap energy, infant mortality rate going towards zero, uh, the global population growth not increasing as we had feared. Right? I mean, I can show you another 50 slides like this. Uh, fact is, the last 20 years, we have vastly improved in a lot of areas, except for equality and terrorism. Well, those are obviously a little more complicated here, right? <laughs> I will not touch on that immediately, but basically, uh, for the outlook of the future, if we can get technology to solve those issues, we just have to make sure that the side effects are not going to take over. And, and make it bad for us, like employment, which I'll talk about in a second. The other thing is, you don't have to be 15 to understand the future. Okay? It's actually very valuable to have a background of experience, but as long as we don't assume that the future is the same than the past, right? which it is clearly not, not even for my job. Right? The fact that we were successful in the past does not mean you're going to be successful in five years. Right? The, the future is not an extension of the past because technology is now changing the context, the framework of what we're doing. I like to say humanity will change more in the next 20 years than the previous 300 years. Some people think that's overdone. I think it's underdone. Basically, if you're looking at the Industrial Revolution, the printing press, those are big changes in people's lives. But what we're having now is that technology is changing us, changing our biology the possibility of connecting to a global network directly from our brain, changing our, our, our genomes to change our bodies. Basically, all of us already have superpowers at our, at our fingertips. You know, the mobile phones that we use today, they're essentially our external brains. And we can store stuff there and we can look things up. We've already become kind of a super, superhuman in this way. So I'll give you some examples, but clearly, you know, the fact that this is happening is what I call hell then, you know, hell and heaven. I mean, you can argue, of course, that things are changing could be, could be hell if your business is suffering. I mean, if you're Iron Mountain, anybody from Iron Mountain here? You know, if you're storing documents, I mean, clearly people are going to store less paper documents, right? And if you're Shell or ExxonMobil, people are not going to use as much oil in the future. In fact, uh, foresight on that is about 20 years until oil is unneeded. If you're a car company making gas engines, uh, roughly in 15 years, people won't be buying cars with, with gas engines. There's estimations saying that in three or four years, your car, if you have an uh, electric vehicle, you can, have to, you can fill it up once a month. 
once a month. And it'd be one third the price of another car. So that's obviously hell, right, if you're in the car business. <laughs> Heaven is, of course, the fact that you can do things for so much cheaper. Right? Imagine, for example, automating the United States Social Security Service, the agency, the SSA. Right? I mean, it's 100,000 people working on administration. Right? This is just huge numbers. There's no magic, really, maybe a little bit. There's some humanity involved, of course, yeah. But it's a, jar it's a giant one trillion record beast, right? Can you automate that and save 90%? You can. Right? How exactly you would do that? Well, of course, yeah. Leave that for you to do. That's your work, right, as advisors. But so we have to make sure that our future uh, takes a turn that we find most of this to be positive. And, you know, um, when you watch Apple keynotes from the last 20 years, the key word in all of that tech stuff is magic, right? And I think it's great if we can figure out how to make technology magic. We shouldn't make it manic, though, or toxic. We should find a good path forward you know, that, that defines this. So this is the key theme, right? On the left, we have the artificial intelligence, you know, machines that can think. And this is the biggest shift that's actually happening today. The computers of the future won't be programmed. The computer that beat the world champion in Go wasn't programmed to play Go. He learned to play Go. In other words, the computer that played Go beat this guy, as Sergio, the Korean guy. Um, he beat this guy essentially by making up the rules of his own version of Go. There's about 3.4 trillion possible moves in Go. Okay? This is not chess. This is not algorithms. Okay? The computer did moves that, that everybody would have thought that plays Go is a stupid, foolish mistake and he won four to one over the human. So now computers can look at things like, say, logistics. Look at all the movement of, of products and production, and they can say, you know what, I've observed this for three months. I've looked at a half a trillion records. I've done half a billion uh, simulations. And I can tell you, if it did it like this, it would save 32% energy. It's possible. We could not know how they do that. We, we just can't follow it. In seven years, the first computer will have the capacity of the human brain, the first commercially available. They already have that now, but you know, it's $500 million and takes the, city, the power of the city of Zurich. But in seven years, we'll have machines like our laptops that will have the possibility of roughly 20 trillion calculations per second. And in 2050, we'll have one computer that has a capacity of all human brains, 10 billion. Imagine what kind of stuff you can do then, right? in terms of that machine doing things. Right? So we'll have to figure out what are we going to do in the future? Where's our value? And here's the question I have for you. Are humans just fancy machines? I hear that argument all the time, especially in California. <laughs> where they make all the machines, <laughs> is that we are naturally going to converge with machines right? by using machines to get faster and quicker, you know, implants. I mean, we're already using lots of machines to be faster and quicker, right? It's like Viagra for the mind, right? in a way. So now we're getting to the point where people are arguing that that's our natural destination. I think that is not a good idea, and I'll tell you why. Right? Because we would end up, you know, I'll talk throughout in my presentation on this, but we may end up in the world where machines sell to machines. Right? I can't really see the sense in that. 
I think that ultimately, if we remove the human part, we're removing the important part. Here's a slide from this guy, Martin Seligman, who is a world-famous psychologist. And the quote from the founder of Alibaba refers to it. It's saying, it's not the technology that changes the world, but the dreams behind the technology. A German philosopher once said, uh, it is not, technology is not what we seek, but how we seek. This is the bottom line of how people get happy, right? It's the happiness definition. Ultimately, the, the purpose of business is to make customers happy. The purpose of life in the general context, of course, is happiness, our happiness, right? human flourishing, in a nutshell, you know, uh, just to give you sort of the lowest common denominator here. But if you're looking at this slide, you know, basically saying, you know, the, the way that we feel happy about what we're doing is PERMA, right? positive emotions, engagement, positive relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. In a nutshell, right? So let me ask you, technology, can technology provide these things? Can technology provide positive relationships, meaning, accomplishment? Well, technology can be helpful, and technology can be positive emotions, yes. You know, you get liked on Facebook, you have a positive emotion, lasts about one second, but still. Right? Technology can provide us with positive emotions, to some degree, but they're fleeting. So the bottom line of this is technology is very good at uh, doing things that are more on the kickoff side, you know, kicking off these ideas, but it's not very good at actually providing them. And if you're building relationships with clients, you want them to have those experiences with you. Right? You don't want them to be turned into an algorithm. So this is the uh, important part that it's not what we seek, but how we seek. So if you're putting your money on technology, which I think we all have to do, because that's obviously inevitable, right? We must understand, embrace technology, and use technology. Uh, we still have to understand this, that this is not the purpose of our business. The purpose of your business is not to turn into technology. The purpose of your business is not to be efficient. Efficiency is great because it brings up the margin, right? And that is why we use technology. But technology efficiency is not the final destination. What kind of companies do you value the most? the most efficient? I mean, we'll have companies that do what current companies like GE are doing with 200,000 employees. They'll do it with 4,000 employees using technology. That is a discussion that we're going to have. You know, what does it mean? And, and so really, humanness, I think, will become even more essential because there's quite a few things that we can't automate. You can't automate happiness. You can't automate meaning. You certainly shouldn't automate ethics, you know, whatever we agree they are. <laughs> For example, the concept of a machine in the military that kills on their own accord without human supervision. A highly debated issue. I mean, a human drone operator is, after two years of doing that work, is pretty much at the end of their wits, right? You can imagine that. Not a good job to have. Can you give that to a machine and just automate it? Is that the right decision? Huge ethical issue. Right? If you're running a medical company or a hospital, would it be right to automate the process of diagnosis? And if so, to what, to what degree? So big discussion that we have to have on this. The bottom line on this is, in the service industry, most of you are from that 
part of the, part of the, uh, of the sectors. We're looking at the world where we're rapidly moving because of technology from commodities to products to services, that's what we're doing now, to experiences. The most valuable companies in the world will be about experiences. What does it feel to work with you? Do you care for them? Can you be trusted? How, how great is your technology? What other values do you deliver? What do you stand for? Those are experiences. And by the way, if you're looking for your own job future, this is how you're safe for the future if you provide experiences. Think about your kids. Don't let your kids take jobs that provide simple products or services because most of those will be automated. Accountants? I mean, let's, let's be honest, right? I mean, there's some really complicated stuff here, but to some degree it's rocket science, yeah? but it's still just numbers, mostly. It's complex, yes, and if you want to automate accounting, you're going to have to sit down and, and write down like 50,000 rules, right? But once that's done, automation. So I like to say, you know, rather than somebody else automating you, like, you know, Facebook has automated friendship. You have to do it yourself. Not in the case of friendship, of course. So this is really hard to understand, and I think it's something that we really must think about what that means. And that is because we're at the pivot point of exponential technological change. And I agree with my colleagues in Silicon Valley on this. Technology is now at the point where science fiction is becoming science fact. Every day that you look somewhere, whether you read newspapers or digital or, or, what, or television, maybe a little bit less, but you see this, the stuff that's happening, it's just mind-boggling. Automatic language translation, self-driving cars, right? uh, airplanes that fly themselves. I mean, Airbus is doing the first big plane, freight plane that will not have a pilot. Right? Container ships steering themselves with one person. 35,000 containers, one person on the ship. Right? I mean, that sounds like Star Trek, right? Like Blade Runner. So we're already at the pivot point. So if you believe that today you can wait and see, you're deeply mistaken. Because in the beginning of the curve, you can wait and see because when you're doubling 0.01, you get 0.02, you get nothing. But now we're going from four Moore's Law, right? Eight, 16, 32. In roughly 70 years, we're going to be 34 times as far. In, uh, in roughly 30 steps, we'll be at a billion. A billion. Your kids will live in a world that's 30x as far as a billion times more powerful technology than today. Hard to believe and hard to imagine. Right? So we really have to see what's happening here. Wait and see means wait to die. Of course, the difficult part here is hard to imagine why that would be the case because many things we've seen that just didn't happen, like the paperless office or artificial intelligence. You know artificial intelligence it went through three winters, you know, when it was great, all these promises, nothing happened. And so we sit here today and we say, oh, we've seen this before, but, you know, it didn't work, won't work. That is a deadly approach. You know, the German car companies, I did quite a bit of work for them in the past. We had a meeting with the top-level CEOs of a big German car group. I will not tell you the name, but you, your guess is as good as mine here. But we're sitting down six years ago and saying, Exponential technological change means self-driving, car sharing, electric vehicles, autonomous drivings, you know, all driving, all that stuff. And in a room like this, we, we got laughter. 
just flat out laughter. Like science fiction type laughter, right? Like you must be nuts. And today, the very same people are either fired, or when I meet them, they're saying, holy shit, these guys weren't actually full of beans over in California. They were actually real. It can't be done. I mean, Tesla is selling twice as many luxury cars as any other brand. And they can't even deliver them much. Right? Hard to figure out. I mean, so it's a huge debate on this, right? Wait and see is not a good idea when you're living in exponential times. I mean, if you're running an accounting company, you know that the, the, the fuse is lit. That's like the music business where I used to work. People don't buy plastic stuff anymore. I mean, if you buy a CD and give it to your kids for Christmas, they're called a therapist. It's a relic. I mean, I have a library. I love my library. Kids think it's nuts, you know, just stash it somewhere. But, you know, so that has really changed. The other thing is, just do it is just as bad. Because just do it means sometimes you're sacrificing things that you want to keep because that's the value of your brand. So if you automate everything, you use technology for everything, and you believe technology can solve everything, sometimes you're kicking out stuff that's essential for who you are. And with artificial intelligence, I'm sure you heard about the discussion on this, right? we can't just allow computers to have an IQ of a million and then connect in the cloud to other computers that have the same IQ, right? We'd be looking at a danger more elaborate than nuclear power. So that's a situation that, that you don't want and then you have to kind of find a balance between the two here. So, what we need here is a social contract. We need an agreement as to how far we will go, what is okay, what's not okay, how do we take care of people who get pushed out? How do we change the inequality problem? I mean, a lot of these things have to do with culture and ethics, right? They, they have nothing to do with religion, by the way. This is really about values, very basic values, about understanding what it means to be human. Bottom line is this, I'm sure you're aware of this, right? Data is actually the new oil, and it's been said for roughly 15 years. I wasn't the one who invented this, right? But data is now the most powerful driver of the economy. If you don't know what to do with data and how, the, how you basically don't exist, because it used to be all about money and oil. And we went to war over oil, right? If you remember. Now we'll go to war over data. Hopefully not, but I mean, in this world, look at the slide here, right? We're moving in a world that is going from the very simple computer that could calculate to one that could be programmed, now we're going to a cognitive computer, a computer that can think. Now make no mistake about this, it's not think like we think. Right? Not at all. Right? To think like we think, we need a body. Right? Everybody agrees that cognition is embodied, you know, we don't think with this. Right? We think with all of it. So when computers are thinking, they think in their own way, and that's a good thing. Right? Uh, but don't project on them that they actually are like us, which they will never be. So, looking at this graph, however, you can see the shift in the global economy is mind-boggling. Look on the left, you, know, you see one lonely bank here. Anybody from a bank here? There must be some people from banks here. Uh, okay, good. <laughs> There's Citigroup, is that probably your company, I hope? Among the oil companies, the most powerful, the biggest market caps in the world, the oil companies. 
Now, just a few years later, 2016, what are the biggest companies in the world? Alphabet, by the way, is of course Google, right? The biggest companies in the world are tech companies, data companies, platforms, social networks, right? Where is this going? Well, clearly, give this five years. Uh, we're looking like technology, connectivity, becomes the driving force of the economy. If you don't get this, you don't understand what's happening here. These companies, now Alibaba, for example, has 57 industry sectors that they're covering. And all these guys, for example, have a banking license. They're looking at adjacent businesses saying, well, consulting business, that's interesting. Really, what are those guys doing that? Well, this is their version of it, right? I do quite a bit of work for Google, so. Um, well, they don't really share those information with me, so what I'm telling you is public, but basically they're saying, okay, what are the consulting people doing? They have information that the other guys don't have, allegedly. Therefore, they're better off advising. But the truth is, of course, that information is now a commodity. It's everywhere. I mean, the other day I went to IBM Watson in a demo in Germany, and I asked IBM Watson about the future of Europe. That's a trivial question. Gave me a 10-minute talk. Like, an intelligent talk. A really intelligent talk. Like, not like Siri, right? Like, like actually intelligent, right? So we have to think about whether it's taken us. I mean, that's, that's changing our world, and that's a huge thing. And then we have this trend, you know, that's, that's sometimes referred to as dataism. Believing in data. And sometimes Descartes referred to that as reductionism, which is to take reality, use some of the data that we get, and then pretend that the small data that we have is the reality. Right? I call this a TripAdvisor effect. TripAdvisor is a fantastic tool, right? But you are in deep trouble if you just go where TripAdvisor tells you. Right? And why is that? Because there's a myriad ways it could be wrong. It doesn't make it useless, it's very useful. In fact, I'm a senior TripAdvisor reviewer because I like the process of you know, getting things off my chest that way. <laughs> but basically what's happening is we, we tend to take data and then technology and say, okay, what we see here is the ultimate, that is the truth, the ultimate data, and therefore these people are fired. Right? People analytics, not a good idea. Data is a strong asset. Without data, we can't do business if we don't get better at data, right? But if we don't mix it with our perception of what reality actually is, right, we're anthropomorphizing, which is to tell the machine that it's a human. So this is a really big concern. I think that's something we have to be careful. We should not adore data to that degree. And we shouldn't let, let uh, you know, go to this point of abdication to where we give data the authority to decide all these things. You know, we, should, we should take it like we take TripAdvisor. And it's going to get a lot better, yeah, clearly. So exponential connectivity, data oil, intelligence, man-machine symbiosis. And as much as we may hate the idea that, that, that uh, robots will take our, job, our jobs, and that they will do things for us, this is our future. Just, we, we can't go back and say that. That's just like saying, well, buy records, don't stream music. Yeah, yeah I'd be happy if you buy my records, I'd be a happy man, but the reality is you, you click on YouTube. Right? So this is something we have to face, leading us to this lovely place. Right? <laughs> right? It's we, we have, we become superhuman. Right? 
Superhumanity is near. So it's, it's a really tempting place because we think of that as a, just like this one, right? It's a, the virtualization, right? I mean, the Apple new headsets, you know, which I, I hate this idea, but I, I haven't tried them yet, right? But maybe we're moving to a place where they're going to be in here, so I don't need any physical thing, right? Uh, maybe that's the destination where it's going. We may very well be the last generation of humans that are not augmented. I mean, I quite literally. The mobile phone is not an augmentation, it's outside of my body. But in California, we already have the term that says wired or fired. And you all, you know the problem that all of us are working more because of the damn mobile devices. That's stupid. It's like you lie in bed at 10 p.m. and yet you make a comment on LinkedIn or so. It's just, it's supposed to take work away from us. And that's where we're going, right, clearly. But we're going in this future, for example, where a doctor would have an augmented reality or virtual reality headset or a hologram and he'll turn into the absolute super doctor because at the flick of an eyelid he can see 100,000 cancer cases cruise by. And that's already working, it's just very expensive. But these things will become normal as normal as WhatsApp. Right? You guys are WhatsApp users if you have foreign friends and text for free around the world. So that's a situation. And then artificial intelligence, of course, is where it all starts. So I want to talk briefly about that so you know, you know what I'm actually saying. Most important division is this. Most of what we're seeing today in terms of smart computers, they're intelligent assistants, IA. Google Maps, Google Inbox, Slack, lots of examples. And that is a powerful tool. If you run a real estate company, construction company, if you give your kids, uh, if you give your clients these apps, these possibilities, they'll be very happy because it's very easy to use. So rather than uh, calling the call center, you can use Amelia from IP software thing to somebody here, showing this later, and they will facilitate that process. There's not many ethical concerns except for that you may get the wrong answers or so, but it's, you know, it's, it's minor operational things. That's the logging fruit that you should investigate. The next one is artificial intelligence, which is a computer that actually makes up their own rules and their own programming. That's where it gets interesting. Right? That is where the absolute enormous savings would be if we can work it out. That is happening, but people who say that this is happening today, I think they, they mistake a, a clear view for a short distance. <laughs> Uh, this is still very much in the place to where we have to observe and see what happens uh, with that. I think IBM Watson is really close to making that work. The next one that's really not here is artificial general, AGI, artificial general intelligence, which is a computer that can think and transfer their knowledge and, and, and uh, possibilities to other domains. So the same computer that does the driving could also do the dishes or, or take care of my electricity. And the next one is artificial superintelligence. That may happen around 2050. So erase that last set here. Right? Uh, erase also the Hollywood fear that computers will kill us. Right? This is entertainment. The only really good, interesting films from that era are really Blade Runner and Her uh, that have any real bearing on, on thinking about the future. The rest is entertainment. Right? So forget all that stuff about the fear of being killed by robots. I think that it may eventually be a concern. This is still very, very distant. What's closer is things like this, shifting to voice control. 
As I'm sure you're aware of, you know, many kids are already using this on a daily basis. I dictate my emails on Siri, on, the, on Apple, on the iPhone, that works great. In German, French, whatever language I, I choose, works great. So I, when I'm driving, I just speak, you know, I shouldn't be doing that when I'm driving at all, but uh, I'm driving my Tesla, of course, I can do anything. Uh, <laughs> so, but this is a huge shift, right? Imagine this, right? Now, I mean, we are... We used to go to a large computer with a web page and we type our stuff in. Now we bring up an app and we type our stuff in. And we're, I mean, this is really clumsy. In the future, we just say, book my flight to Malaga. And the computer has 25 million data points about me and we'll figure all that out in 14 seconds. We'll talk to another bot to get a deal. Both, I'm done. If you're a personal assistant in an office, that's your job. Of course, there's many things that you do that the computers can't really do yet. Right? So this is, uh, you see a mock-up of how that works. Basically, the devices have information, they go into the cloud, they match it, and that comes out with a recommendation and does the job for you. This will revolutionize entertainment, content, media, newspapers. You're sitting on the couch and saying, please play, play House of Cards, the scene where, you shoot, where Russo dies, right? And boom, it's there. That already works, it's just more complicated. Our kids will live in a world without typing. They will not have to type. In fact, some kids will argue that they don't have to learn how to write. As a concept, which would be a bad thing, of course, you know, if you didn't know how to write, at least I think so. So here's the CEO of DeepMind, a Google company, that says one way of thinking of AI is a process that will convert unstructured information into knowledge. Right? That sounds like your work, doesn't it? Unstructured information into knowledge? If you're a lawyer, on a law firm, if, you, uh, if you're an accountant, an advisor, personal service, that, that is what you do, right? Unstructured information into knowledge? Well, not all of it, but... So he says AI, this is why I put this chain of uh, belief and technology there, right? It can virtually change any of those businesses. So, really the thing is, you know, we're, we're, we're witnessing this giant wave washing over us, you know, going to the cognitive era. Uh, this term is by IBM, but it's a, a widely used term now. Um, so, I won't necessarily refer to IBM, but the cognitive computing, the thinking computing, right, that is basically our, the next big thing. And we have to take a position there and say, what should we do, what should we not do? Uh, CIO's research here, the CXO's say that over in banking, 57% of CIO's think that this is the next big thing for their business. Right? Computers that can think. It's a pretty mind-boggling chart. Now, on my own, I, I looked at this and said, okay, what's happening in my job, you know, which is to give speeches about 100 a year, right? And here is TEDx saying that the next event will have robots speaking, not people. So, basically a robot will take and give the speech. I, I don't know what the robot's going to do next, but your fantasy is uh, widely encouraged here. But nothing and no one will be left untouched once intelligent machines are as normal as smartphones. And I would submit to you that sounds very scary. I think it could be great if we go about it the right way. Because nobody really likes routine work. We do a lot of routine work, that's just part of the job. Can we find a way to stay on top of technology? I think we can. Can we find a way of those interfaces? 
But who defines that? And, and who would be in charge of that process? The temptation is to automate everything. You know, I work a lot with Fortune 500 companies, and the first thing they say, can we use artificial intelligence, big data, and all the other stuff to eliminate as many jobs as possible? Well, they don't put it like that, but you know, it's obvious research. Right? If you eliminate jobs, you have a higher margin, that's great, so you're gonna end up with 90% less people in 10 years, right? That, that's the idea. I would submit to you that's not a good idea. I think a good idea is to take jobs that are largely routine, automate them, shift people over to meaningful jobs to, to create jobs for clients. For example, as grocery stores are automating the checkout, the same people could be there at the salad bar making a nice organic salad, right? But of course, it's different skills, and some of that won't work, because <laughs> the skills aren't there. Big discussion. So responsible automation, that's the key. And responsible for your clients, responsible for your company culture, and responsible to society. And of course, you know, in, in the US, uh, I live in Europe, you know, everybody hates taxes here. And, well, we hate taxes also in Europe, yeah. I live in Switzerland. <laughs> I live in Switzerland where there's no reason to hate the tax, because right? <laughs> it isn't that much. But there are, there are already uh, countries proposing automation tax. Basically, uh, it says if you automate a certain amount of jobs, you have to pay into a pot that will re-educate people who were automated away. Well, that is clearly not in the extreme sense of capitalism, you would say. But that's a discussion we have to have. Respons what is responsible automation? If you're thinking about automation, don't just think about efficiency. That is a very, very short-term fuse. So, yes, it works for a few years, and then you're really efficient, and then what do you have? You have nothing, right? You're just as efficient as anybody else. The CFO loves efficiency. The CEO or the CIO should love brand and purpose, right? That goes beyond just efficiency. So here's a question for our business, right? When we think about our business, we have to think about, ultimately, the direction is this, right? I call this the atomic heart. The purpose, right? the what and the why, that is the key question of why we exist, why your company exists. Amazon calls this customer delight. That is their purpose. And as much as you may hate Amazon for their monopolistic behavior, Sometimes, you know, they, they do a pretty damn good job with customer delight, right? <laughs> you have to say that. Uh, so it's a very, like, you know, it's not so easy, but the question of how is surrounding all these things, right? The question of how isn't the question. Everybody assumes you know how to do how. How is technology? Do you really think that your customers in five years will come to you because of your technology? They may leave you now because of your technology, right? your non-existent technology or your bad technology. But will they stick around in 10 years, you know, if, you're, if you just have good technology? So the question is really, how can you take that further? Because uh, William Gibson, a science fiction writer, once said, technology is morally neutral until we apply it. When you apply technology like artificial intelligence, automation, big data, and I have a whole list coming up there, you have to think about that. You know, what is the moral aspect? The, ethical aspect that you put on your, the ratio between good and bad, right? What is all of those things? So here's, uh, I don't have time to go through all of those, but I call them the mega shifts. They're in the book. There's a whole chapter in the book, so you can read about that. And those are all the things that are happening now at the same time. And those are all shifts, some of them, of course, quite obvious, digitization, mobilization, and so on. Right? But I'll show you a couple that I think you'll find interesting. Um, 
and I think that to a large degree very exciting, uh, but at the same time, you know, here's sort of a, a ranking for the services industry. Uh, one of them is datafication. I think that's kind of a neolo neologism, you know, it's a made-up word, right? But datafication means that anything that used to be between people or handwriting or between the lines is turning into data. So you used to have a conversation with a client and you scribble your notes and that's it, right? And you go back and make a proposal or something. Today, right, you put it into an app, the app tracks all of this and you put it into Salesforce and it's all becoming data, right? The doctor that used to see you, you had a conversation, you scribble it down, give you a, a prescription, that's that. Today, that's all done with apps right? and with tracking devices. Everything is turning into data. And that's really changing our business fundamentally to see how we do it. I think this is a 90% opportunity. You know, I'll go through the trends a little bit more, but if you, uh, if you read the chapter in the book, if you master those trends, and there's not just 10, there's like, in the meanwhile, they have multiplied, you know, uh, if you master them, then your future is pretty safe. So you understand what they mean. So here's first one, the datafication, right? In the medical business, for example. Right? Tech companies are creating a man-machine interface, devices, pills with microchips, uh, smart pills in your bloodstream. Right? That sounds far out. Two days ago, um, there was a new company that was funded by Verily, which is a Google company. Right? to create a new way of treating diabetes, not with pills, with technology. Right? Preventing as much as 90% of incidents of uh, diabetes incidents, you know, going to the hospital, by using a mechanism of tracking your, your pressure and your, 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 your blood sugar levels and all these things. That's a huge undertaking, $600 million funding. That's how datafication is changing the world around us. And if you put in all these things together, I'm sure you've observed, you know, digitization, right? Robots everywhere doing the, doing the job and robots playing ping pong, if you desire so. And all the warehouses, lights out factories that have not a single light on. And that's changing our world to a huge place. And then you have these things, this, just come, this is the inventory bot. I mean, these things are popping up everywhere. Now, as you walk through the store, the inventory bot cruises along and, and checks out what's missing and, what's, and what has happened today and sends it off and the, the, the bot in the warehouse go gets it and at night puts it back on the shelf. Right? I call this gradually then suddenly. What is the inventory bot of consulting? Right? Well, it's not too far to imagine what that would look like. The inventory bot for legal services? Well, it's obvious, you know, e-discovery. Yeah, you can just discover the potential of your lawsuit in uh, roughly 14 minutes rather than, you know, 14 days with uh, 100 paralegals. And your clients will know that. Your clients will say, well, what are you charging me for? You got a bot doing this. So then we have to think about how we do this. Basically what happens here is the rabbit, right? The rabbit and many carrots, abundance. Our clients will have so many options to get these services. Just like, you know, if you look at the music business, the film business, the, I mean, today, if you want to legally watch movies, how many choices do you have in the US? I don't know, 15? Limitless, basically. Don't have to buy a DVD anymore, you have abundance. Right? That's gonna happen to services, to banking, to pharma, to medical, and to energy. 
So to find abundance, we have to be better. Or we have to create something really unique. I call this the Tesla moment. The Tesla moment occurred when the car companies realized these guys aren't full of shit. They're actually going to happen. And a bunch of law firms, consulting firms, and firms that are in the service sector will have Tesla moments realizing that this is actually, this can be done. So it's a little bit way because it's more intricate and there's regulation, for example, in banking and medical and so on. But we have to think about what that means, how we can preclude the Tesla moment and think about that. Because the other thing that's happening is that we used to think of the world in very simplistic terms. Right? Uh, in these three circles, you had business, right, which is organization, you had humanity, culture, politics, and you have tech. Right? Clear cut, a little bit of an overlap. Right? But today you have this. Right? Today you have business models that mix up the whole thing. Right? I mean, what do those tech companies do? They are in the business of reorganizing culture. Right? They're changing laws. They're impacting how we interact. They change taxes. In fact, some of the biggest companies in the sector, the so-called unicorns, right, they don't even pay taxes. They found loopholes for everything, and they don't even know what they are. So that's really, that's a, that's a huge challenge, I think. For us, we have to think about how do we create a company, or if we have a company, how do we make our company become indispensable? If you're not indispensable, you will be dispensed. That is the law of digital Darwinism. Right? I mean, again, the music business, best example. The record labels still only exist because they hold the rights to the catalog. Right? Does any current artist care for signing with Sony Music? Uh, some of them do still, but you know, it's pretty much, in, in 10 years, we won't even know who they are. So it's very important to think about if you're dispensable, what happens where things are going. Now, dispensable is people, I will talk about that. You will become dispensable as, as a worker, as an executive, as a CEO, if you do routine work. And you can see this graph right here. The red graph is routine operations, and the blue graph is non-routine. So routine is our enemy. And there's routine cognitive work, and there's routine non-cognitive work. And we have to look at this and say, OK, what is our response going to be? Are we happily slapping the all-robot friends and collaborating with them? I think in many cases that's probably a good idea, right? Or are we going to invent new ways of doing things? I love this app called Timber. You know which one that this is referring to, right? It's, uh, <coughs> it's uh, the guy is going to spoil the log. <laughs> so what's our response going to be? Huh? So the question is, at, on, in this scale, how far do you think we should go? This is a question you have to answer for your business, right? You don't want to stay a monkey, but are you going to connect your brain to the internet? Are you going to automate thinking? It's possible, right? Just like we use the mobile phone today, in five years, we use the World Wide Web, the global brain, through an interface of brain computers. And so what are we then, right? Where do we go? Where do you put that? Point. I think this is a good point to put it somewhere between the wearables and the cyborgs, or maybe this is a point where I would say definitely not a good idea. 
something we should discuss when we do the questions. Where would you draw the line? Well, here's the key point. Technology has no ethics. Machines don't have values. They don't have morals. They don't have understanding of all the things you know, that are actually dear to us. Human relationships are 95% based, based on things that are not algorithms. In fact, the average human, if I meet you in the hallway, takes one second, 1.2 second on average, uh, to identify the other person as somebody I want to talk to or not. It takes 1.2 seconds without saying anything. Things that we decide on where to buy and what to do, right, they're based on a lot of things that are not algorithms. So the idea of technology having ethics, right? We, if we as a society don't have ethics, we're doomed. And I'm not talking about fancy ethics like, you know, uh, about whether we should pay taxes or not. Right? I'm talking about bottom line stuff. Right? Is this good for humanity or not? When you're inventing something, when you're using something, when you're buying technology for your company, the key question is how happy will it make my company, my employees, and my customers, maybe in the reverse order then, right? That's, that's the only question. And if it does make people happy, if it makes people too happy, then you have a drug, right? So that's another thing, right? You're happy is one thing, right? But, but getting addicted to something is another thing, right? So I would propose to you, and I propose in the book, we need an EPA for humanity. You know, the Environmental Protection Agency is not very much liked in many instances, and it's very bureaucratic and stuff, but if we didn't have that, right? So maybe we need this for the future, and we need a sort of a, a thinking about how we can keep the things human. Think about the human things like mystery, secrets, uh, compassion, empathy, understanding, creativity. I mean, the list is like five pages long. We don't want to reduce that just because we're not efficient. And the concept of being efficient is a stupid idea for people. Because right? that, that's what machines do. I mean, machines are supposed to be efficient, right? My car is supposed to be, it's not me that's supposed to be efficient at least not on that same level. So here's the real danger, I think, also for our businesses. Uh, this is Boston Dynamics, by the way, showing off the Christmas robot. Um, the danger is not that machines will kill us. Any of the things you see in science fiction, the danger is that we become too much like them. The danger is that we become, we think like machines, because it's so tempting. We automate things that should not be automated. You're squeezing the last couple miles out of our brain. So this is something we clearly need to do. Uh, you know that um, uh, Mark Andreessen said years ago, he said software is eating the world. Right? You know, Mark is the biggest venture capitalist on the West Coast and brilliant guy. Right? And it's true, you know, everything has turned into software. But I would propose to you, if we think of that too religiously in terms of uh, saying that all that matters is the data, then, then we end up being cheated by software. Right? Just like you're cheated by TripAdvisor if it tells you to go someplace that you haven't paid attention to it. Right? You've seen the movie Her, right? Yeah. Great example of cheating. The guy falls in love with the machine. The machine, or you know, they actually make love, whatever, you don't define that. But at the end of the movie, the machine tells the guy that she's doing the same thing with 4,650 other people at the same moment, right? That's what machines do, right? 
So we have to be careful that we use them, but we don't want them to pretend like they're us. You know? In German, they call that Dasein, which means existence. Right? Our existence is separately from machines. You know, we're not the same. Right? And, and Facebook, for example, is one of those giant cheating mechanisms. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a vortex of, of pleasure. Right? Uh, and all of you that use Facebook, we can't get away from Facebook. It's impossible to get away. Because it's like they have 400 doctors working on addiction models on Facebook. You know? it's, like, it's, it's the next smoking, basically. So it's a kind of feudalism model. So we have to be careful that because the unintended consequences like this is from the Atlantic magazine. Like we spend more time building relationships with our screens than we do with people. That is pathetic. I mean, if you're running a company that does that, no wonder you're going to go bankrupt. Right? You have to spend relationships with people through technology. Right? I mean, that is the whole purpose of why we do business. And here's a critical question. Do we really want companies in Silicon Valley and in China to decide what humanity is? Who decides on this? How far we go this? Mission control for humanity. Should it really be from them? Uh, I have to close because I want to get to some questions, but just to leave you a, a, on a positive note here, in terms of the skills of the future, this is great research from the World Economic Forum saying that, that the way that we're safe for the future involves these skills that are non-routine, creativity, and now, as of late, emotional intelligence. What is emotional intelligence? Well, it is exactly the opposite of artificial intelligence. Right? It's things that we instinctively know how to do. It's things that go beyond the, the issue of robotization, right? It's basically not this, but emotional intelligence, purpose, and culture. Do you know what is the most important factor in, in company success? It's not technology. Suffice to say, if you have bad technology, you will not be successful. Right? If you have yesterday's technology and not automating and not using data, you will not be successful. Right? But the defining factor behind all that is culture. Culture and purpose. Brand. You can see that with all the big successes, you know, that is basically where it all comes from. So as I was saying earlier, let's not maximize efficiency and forget about humanity. Let's give to efficiency what we have to give to efficiency to the CFO and others. But let's think about the human purpose. Right? Let's think about culture. I called it human insight. Right? Inside of this fancy technology is, is, is a human, right? I mean, that's how we do business. We decide because of humans. We build relationships. So to summarize, we need in the future strong algorithms and what I call androrhythms in the book, right? It's, it's the same thing as an algorithm, but just human things. And here, here's what they are. Right? There's uh, hundreds of them. You know what they are, right? We need both. Let's make no mistake about it. If you just have the human part, I think it's very tough to do business. You're going to end up uh, being a musician or an artist. <laughs> but algorithms, like there's a great quote from Einstein that said, computers are incredibly fast and accurate and stupid. Human beings are incredibly slow, inaccurate, and brilliant. Together they are powerful. Picasso once said, computers are stupid. They just answer questions. So let's not become computers and just answer questions. Use them to stay on top of computers. Think about the mega shifts. Right? If, you, 
if you're in a services business, you want to understand where this is going, you have to understand these shifts. Right? This is the most important chapter in the book. When you understand them, then you can devise new business models and set yourself up to be human on top of technology. You do not want to be human under technology. You don't want to become technology as you can compete with it. That is a stupid idea. Because we'll, we'll never win that race. In seven years, it's over. Computers will be more powerful than anything that we've ever seen. I will leave you with a, a great quote by Alvin Toffler, who just died. Rest in peace. Sir. The future belongs to those who can unlearn and relearn. And I think this is why you're here. This is why we're talking about this. The future is bright. It has fantastic possibilities. It's not without challenges like unemployment and others. But we can unlearn and relearn. I think that is the key, how we can reinvent ourselves. And so that's what I wish for you to, to look into. And uh, that's my book could be made a bit of a guide there. And thanks very much for your time and attention. And that's Gerd Leonhard on the HFS Podcast as a Service, recorded live at the HFS Buyers Summit, Cognition, on September 16th, 2016. The slides Gerd used for his talk are available at futuristgerd.com. We'd like to thank Gerd for giving us such a thoughtful and thought-provoking discussion. I'm Mark Reed Edwards. See you next time on the HFS Podcast as a Service.